music, 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 technology, music, technology, music, technology, technology, tech, 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 music, technology, teacher, 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 hello everyone, and welcome to the New Tech Teacher Talk Podcast. This podcast is a part of newtechteachernet.com, a website dedicated to advocating, supporting, and inspiring creativity in teachers and students through music technology. I am your host and founder of New Tech TeacherNet, Heath Jones. I teach music technology courses at McConnell Middle School in Gwinnett County, Georgia. In this episode, I continue my discussion with Dr. Adam Patrick Bell about the studio as an instrument for the creation of music in the music tech classroom, as well as his thoughts about the creative and learning processes that take place. Dr. Bell is an assistant professor of music education in the School of Creative and Performing Arts at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. His current courses include Music and Popular Culture, Popular Music Pedagogy, and Introduction to Music Technology. His primary areas of research are do-it-yourself music making and learning in the home project studio recording, music software and instrument designs impact on learning, and music technologies impact and assistance with those with disabilities in music. In addition to numerous articles written for professional and educational journals, he has shared his research and presented professional learning sessions around the globe. He also serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of Music, Technology, and Education, as well as Visions of Research in Music Education. I hope that you enjoy part three of the conversation. The next quote here, you write, um, the musical culture of a school ought to mirror the culture in which it is situated and incubate an environment where the future is fashioned and new genres are generated. So again, yes, but something that I've run into also with my colleagues who are band orchestra directors who are, you know, they they want to maintain their enrollment. But mm-hmm. so the question is, will this rise in music technology and recording programs? Are we working against the future of our more traditional music programs like band or orchestra or choir? Yeah. Yeah. It's, this is, I, this is a question that I wrestle with a lot. And um, I think that a fun thing about working in the academic realm is you get to live in the conceptual world a lot. And I think that if we start by thinking with this question just conceptually, I don't think we should be concerned about one thing taking precedence over another, right? But I realize that how that shakes out in reality can be very different. But I think the question I'm often posing to people and thinking about this is, well, you know, what's the purpose of our music education programs? Like, what do we expect to, to get out of it? Or why do we have it in the first place? And and some high school teachers will say, well, we want excellence. We want the best band program in the county or whatever kind of thing. Some teachers will say, like, we're just really trying to get students to play music. <laughs> we're not really concerned about level, um, at least at this point. And, you know, I, I come from a, a background of teaching music in public schools where I was just really focused on trying to get students excited about music, making music, and and trying to meet them where they're at. So I kind of fall into this latter camp where my mentality is we, there's a lot of education speak about being student-centered. And is that is it real? That's my question. So I, you know, and that means, like, if I think about popular music, like, what I think is very different than my students. 
So it's not about me, it's about my students. Now, that's not to say we can't do all kinds of music. I think, you know, we really should. And my point is that it's going to change where you're at. Like Calgary, compared to where you are outside of Atlanta, like there's probably different musical cultures there. And so this is getting back to this idea of like a model. Well, we shouldn't say, oh, we do this, this, and this, because it's going to it's gonna change from place to place. And if you go to like a global music education conference, you see it's different in Australia. It's different in Nepal. It's different in Scandinavian countries. So it's not like a, a set way to do this. And I think that's hard for some people to kind of wrap their head around, but that's just the reality. So I think where I'm at and having worked in the U.S. and kind of knowing some of the U.S. systems, like they're kind of similar. And what I hear a lot at the high school level is like we have an established band program, choir program, maybe an orchestra program. And like, that's the way it's always been. This is what we do. This is what music education is. And part of my job is to challenge that and say like, is it like if if you're really student centered, like is that all we should do? And my answer is like, no, obviously it's not. If you talk to your students, if you're immersed in their musical culture at all, you'll realize that it's not. So it's not to say you can't do that. It's to say like you should maybe be doing more. And practically speaking, I realize that can be really tricky at the university level. Uh, we we deal with these kinds of issues too, and we have to make space, you know. So talking about conceptual real estate uh, for for curriculum and actual real estate for paper. Those are two different things. But I, I do think it comes down to like people making compromises about, well, maybe we don't need to do this all the time, or maybe this doesn't need to be mandatory, these kinds of questions. So I feel like if we really focus on the students, that could be our guiding light. But I, I know not everyone agrees with me, and but, but I don't come from a background of championing excellence in the orchestra because I don't think the purpose of a high school music program is to prepare a student to get into a music conservatory uh, and then go on to play in an orchestra or something. It can be, it can be that, but not only that. And that's kind of the point I'm trying to make. Again, that's another yes moment. So and I'm in a great situation where I'm at, but, you know, our school is, it's a public school. It's very reflective of our community. We've got students from very diverse uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds. And one of the things that's great for me, because, you know, I, I butt heads with my colleagues too about this, that, but, you know, since we started our music technology program here, our band and orchestra and chorus program have continued to grow. Their enrollment mm-hmm. numbers are growing up, are are increasing. While at the same time, we've added an additional three hundred plus students a year who are getting a music creation course who otherwise might not have. So, as we are coming closer to the end of the conversation, I want to read two other quotes to you. And this is I got these from a great series on Netflix. Okay. Uh, called The Art of Design. These quotes come from the episode that featured a person named Christoph Neiman, who was an illustrator. I believe he's created more covers for the New Yorker magazine and numerous other publications than uh, than anyone else. And I think that these quotes very much relate to many of the processes that you advocate for in your book. So I'd like to read you two of these quotes and then just give you a chance to kind of react and comment on the relevance to the music studio or the music creation world. The quotes are basically in response to a question about how do great artists or performers, how are they able to produce these masterful works of art? The first way that Neiman responds to the question was by citing a quote from another artist named Chuck Close, uh, who said, 
inspiration is for amateurs. Us <laughs> professionals just go to work in the morning. And then he followed that quote up by saying, and this is from Neiman, uh, he says, it's just showing up and getting started. And then something amazing happens. All that matters is that you enable the chance for something to happen. And for that, you have to sit at your desk and you have to draw and do and make decisions and hope for the best. So uh, how would you respond to that approach to the artistic process as far as it applies to music? Yeah, um, I'm going to counter most of this, but I, I do I actually do believe in inspiration. I think it's an important part of the creative process. But I do think the idea of like, you know, waiting around for this muse to strike you and then getting to it is a little bit problematic. And yeah, like you talk to enough people, you'll find that what most of these quotes are getting at is, is pretty true. Like you just kind of have to like commit time to it. And this shouldn't come to us as a surprise to any musician, because if you learn to play something, you know, you, you have to put time into it. And, you know, the creative process is, is similar. Um, and so you have to like set aside time for it. And that can be really challenging in classrooms. I've noticed with students, you know, you come from another class, you're thinking about something totally different and now you're in this new physical space and now you have to get into a new conceptual space and you have, you know, X number of minutes to try to like do something creative. So um, I, I, this is something I talk about with my students and just trying to kind of get into the mindset to sort of establish this culture as a starting point. But I also try to do some things to help them with that. So I don't think it's enough to say, well, just get to work and try to be creative because that's really challenging, especially to someone who maybe doesn't have experience doing this before. What if you've never tried to do something before or you can't remember that? You know, where do you start? I really like, um, you know, the, the work that's come out of MIT talking about sort of different kinds of things with technology. But, uh, you know, Mitch Resnick's book, recent book, Lifelong Kindergarten, kind of talks about some of these ideas that I, that I that I champion and, you know, creating some constraints for students to help focus their thinking and I ask them about this often. Hey, can we, can I give you some constraints to sort of focus your thinking to kind of help get you going? And also it's important to recognize that you may do spend hours on something and you might not really use it in the immediate future, but you might draw on it some later time. So things don't always work in like a linear way as we might hope they do, because it seems really efficient. It can be a little bit chaotic, but that's kind of how that process works. So, uh, yeah, I would sort of echo those quotes and say I think it's really important to sort of have discipline and, and just really commit time and energy to these projects. Uh, and I think that's up on the teacher to sort of create that context in the classroom to allow students to, like, get used to that. You kind of have to model it for them. I, I, I sometimes show what I'm working on as well to kind of say, like, hey, like, I'm stumbling too, you know, it's, it's not always smooth. And... I often like to show them something I finished that I'm proud of at the beginning to say like, Hey, here's something cool that I made and proud of. I want to share it with you. And I look forward to you sharing your work with me at the end of this project or whatever. Um, but I think it's equally important to say like, Hey, I'm working on this. Here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? You know, trying to model uh, what you're doing with your students. So it's not just like a top down approach. Yeah. I know w with, the age level that I deal with and with it being a very introductory level, you know, some students want and need a very narrow kind of path to go down, you know, other students like to explore more. So, you know, I'll, I'll tell uh, 
teachers that at its beginning level, particularly keep the projects small, bite-sized kind of thing. So, and for example, but, uh, you know, at the same time, uh, there are several projects I have where I'll tell the students, here's the project, you know, here are the parameters, unless you have a better idea. And if they come up with their own kind of idea for a similar uh, you know, purpose, I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as one example, I had them working on melodies, and, and particularly bass lines or melodic bass lines. And so I had them playing an E-flat pentatonic scale, E-flat minor pentatonic, just the black keys on the piano. Mm-hmm. And I didn't tell them that, you know, this, is, this key is the E-flat key or that this is a five-note scale or whatever. I said, We're, you know, I want you to play around on just using these black keys. Start on this and, on, and end on this one. And for some of them, it worked great. But, you know, I had some that would do that, but then their finger would slip off and, and land on a white key. Uh, mm. And i go, that was great. You know, d- 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 well, can I do that? <laughs> sure. And so it's, and again, it's, I think part of it, too, is you know, a lot of times the students want whatever comes out to be, to sound great right away. And they have to kind of be given the permission going, listen, there's some really terrible sounding stuff that you're going to make and Mm -hmm. you're not going to like it. But when we keep messing around and eventually you're going to start learning, you know, how to put these sounds together in a way that you like. And that's really cool to see students experience that. Yeah. And I was going to say, sometimes you spend a lot of time on a project and then I'll say, okay, do it again by yourself, but you have less time and just doing it a second time. They know what they're doing. They're so much happier with what they do. It's just that initial learning process. You know, it just, it takes time and it's, it's an easy thing to say, but it can be hard to do as a teacher. You're trying to get through all these things, but it's like, honestly, I've had times where I just like, I gave them two extra class periods and it made a huge difference. Yeah. And you know, particularly with me, and it's still true today, but particularly so when I started is I, you know, I learned so much from the students. My approach is to kind of, you know, whether we're going to work on a rhythm thing or a melody thing that I'll kind of show you, you know, here's the tool, here's how you can use it. Now go play with it. And uh, a lot of times they'll come back and go, how did this work? And I'm like, how, do, how did you, how did you do that? And, you know, I learned from them certainly as, as much as I teach from them. And a lot of that just comes from allowing them to explore, just to mm. play with things. Yeah. So one last question, uh, just to kind of wrap up, what advice or words, or words of encouragement would you give to teachers or schools who are considering starting a music technology and recording program but are hesitant because of their perceived lack of either knowledge or skills or resources? I think the first thing I would say is I'm thrilled you're thinking about it. I think that's like a really good first step that a school will consider it. And as a follow-up, I would say, well, go for it. Um, it'll be, you know, it'll be successful. These programs engage students because even though we call it music technology, I think what these classes often end up being about is the students' music. And I think starting with the students' music, you know, there's nothing to sell there um, that they've already bought in. And I think the real challenge can be for schools is the budget for the tech and stuff. I think that's, at least here, like that's a big challenge. But if, if those things are an issue, then... The training side of things, I think that there's great resources out there for people to learn this. And I think that I would also push, you know, as the book does, you know, engage in some do-it-yourself learning. Um, that's how so many of us do it. It's It might seem strange if you come from a really formal background, but the tradition of, of audio engineering, of music production, is 
a kind of chaotic do-it-yourself informal learning style like that's it's traditional it's how people have done it for a hundred years and try it out you know uh it's it's quite inconsequential you're just going to be by yourself or with a friend hanging out pushing buttons there's always command z you can undo things um so i i just don't think that the the um the the barriers are that daunting from the learning side of things i i think the barriers for implementing these programs for schools and school boards at least at least here and when i talk to people have more to do with the resources and you know computers are expensive software licenses are expensive like that's like a significant hump to get over and you know i can't give any advice on that because the funding models just change from place to place so much but um if you look around the country there's like great people out there that can be role models and mentors who have been running programs for years and you can look to those programs and see what they're doing and be like oh wow like yeah we can do that you know so it's not like you're necessarily forging a brand new path like these are things that people have done and i think it's it's a matter of engaging with that community and you know people such as yourself who are creating resources for other educators to help them out. I think it's wonderful. Well, Dr. Bell, I, I really cannot thank you enough for uh, taking the time to have this conversation and, and talk today. And like I said, your the Dawn of the Doll book was, uh, I, I regularly go back and, and, and read and reread. So, but I appreciate you uh, so much taking the time to chat today and share your knowledge and information. This ends the third and final part of my conversation with Dr. Adam Patrick Bell. If you are interested in learning more about Dr. Bell and his work, I would definitely recommend reading his book, Dawn of the Doll. You can also learn more about him and his work on his website at www.adampatrickbell.com. If you have enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about it. In addition to the podcast and www.newtechteachernet.com, I also have a blog at www.newtechteachernetblog.com and the New Tech Teachernet channel on YouTube that you can subscribe to. And if that isn't enough, you can also stay in touch with us on Facebook at New Tech Teachernet or on Twitter at Twitter handle at New Tech Teach Net. Please like, share, retweet, and always feel free to leave some comments and let me know how we were doing or what you would like to learn more about. Advocate, support, inspire, create. The Music Technology Teacher Network. Teacher Network. Music Technology Teacher Network.